I was on campus of a local Christian college recently. Some of you might know where that is. Um, and I saw a young man wearing a t-shirt that said, just Jesus with a period by it. What do you think? Is that a good statement? Is that an unhelpful statement? Does it say that, does it, is it trying to point out that we shouldn't add anything to Jesus, to the message of his good news? Or is it unhelpful because it ignores the fact that maybe there's more to it than just Jesus? Well, my impression is that there's good intentions behind the shirt uh, because our emphasis is Christ. Uh, Similarly, I think that we at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton have a very good reason why we put so much of our focus primarily on Jesus Christ. The reason being is I think the Bible shows us that Jesus is the only way we get to God and that God has come to us. Jesus calls himself a door. He calls himself the way. No one has hope to, of coming to the Father except through him. We worship a triune God, but one who has made himself known in increasing ways, most specifically and most clearly, he has made himself known through his son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus was always intended to be that focal point, the focal point of our love, our devotion to a God who is incomprehensible and holy and eternal. All in all, I go back and forth, the jury is still out on the shirt. Even though it was only two words, it was unclear, maybe at best. But what I do know is that Jesus Christ should and does matter a great deal to us. Jesus is meant to be our chief treasure above all because he is and will, will forever be our mediator or our go-between between us and the unapproachably holy God. The big idea for this morning is that we would do well to make knowing and glorifying Jesus Christ the aim of all of our love, devotion, worship, ambitions, dreams, and obedience, for this is fitting, it's good, and it is filled with unspeakable joy. In other words, treasure Jesus Christ for the rest of your days. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make disciples for him, parent for his sake, work as unto him. Whatever you do, do it for his glory. Break new ground of obeying him and following him further to please and delight him. Flee to him for refuge. Come to him with your burdens. Because from the, before the foundation of the world, it was the triune God's purpose that mankind would be able to know and experience all the glories of God through Jesus alone. Here's the snapshot passage that will be a sort of guide text for us this morning. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Who is this mediator? Who is this Jesus? That's the most important question we could ever answer. By God's grace, we have a statement of faith 
that describes succinctly what we believe about Jesus, except that there's one problem in the table of contents of our statement of faith. We come, we've come through just a few sections, and then we wind up coming to this section about the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. The only problem with that is that includes the incarnation of Jesus, his two natures, his earthly life and ministry, which the Bible took four entire books to dedicate to, his death, resurrection, his reign, his saving work, the efficacy or the, the sufficiency of his saving work, and his exaltation. So anybody know how best we can tackle that this morning? Because I, I don't have the best idea, but we're gonna give it a shot. Um, but my prayer today is that we would open ourselves up to what will amount to a lifetime of growing in the knowledge and firsthand experience with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the Spirit would use just a brief look this morning to grow our desire for Christ even just one step more. So with that, we'll start with the person of Christ first and then we'll explore his saving work second. We can summarize the, the, the person of Christ in a few ways, but we're gonna start with Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. Our statement of faith says, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus the Christ. Some words from Hebrews that you've heard already this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets through these men who would speak the words of God, reveal God to his people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's not all. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is not the knockoff diminished version of God. He is none other than God himself, the preexistent one, the creator of the universe and the highest authority that there is. Paul says something similar to this in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Creation was made and exists for him. He is of primary importance in the universe and he mightily holds it together. So you exist not just in part, but solely because of the power and will of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal son of God and nothing less. In fact, he was aware of who he was because when, when he was being unjustly tried, you might remember this, he claimed the eternal and personal name that belongs to only the God of Israel. Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before the father of this nation of Israel ever existed, I am. To think that the Son of God was present when the earth was without form and was, was just this void before America, before Rome, before the Greeks, before Moses, even before Abraham, he was there. He needed nothing. He was powerfully and eternally self-sufficient, experiencing perfect fellowship among the Trinity, creating planets and mountains with a word. But in 1 John, we find out that the eternal Son of God did something astounding. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word being Jesus. And the Word was God himself. He was in the beginning with God. All things, again, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The point, this God, creator of the universe, by whom all things exist, came down. He's the God, the Son, who became incarnate. We use the word incarnation, and that just means coming into the flesh. And we see that in Matthew 1, when an angel appears to a man named Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, when the angel is telling Joseph, call his name Jesus, call him the eternal son of God in the flesh, the creator of all things, call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Written into his name will be the miracle of what has happened, God with us. As I was thinking about that this week, I think for the first time ever, I was ready to celebrate Christmas in October because God with us is, is profound. But it's a description of exactly what this eternal son of God chose to do. Jesus is nothing short of God who is also with us. I had the privilege of spending a few hours in the car with Krishna uh, a few weeks ago. And as he was just sharing with me how he shares the gospel with people consistently, one of the themes that kept coming up that was most personally effective for him was that fact that God came down. He came down. He did not have to come down, and he chose to. But that doesn't mean something to us if we don't realize that Jesus was there before there was anything. And that by his sovereign will and because of his love, he chose to come down. Last week, I referenced a quote from a poet named George Herbert. 
Herbert wrote lots of beautiful poems, but one of his best, in my not-so-important opinion, is called The Sacrifice. A few stanzas capture the weight that this person who is giving himself as a sacrifice on the cross was still, in fact, the eternal Son of God. Pardon the old English here, but we'll try to, we'll try to see through it to see what Herbert is saying. So these people are gathering to capture Jesus. The princes of my people make a head against their maker. They do wish me dead. Who cannot wish except I give them bread. Then they condemn me all with that same breath which I doth give them daily unto death. Thus Adam, my first breath breathing rendereth. Hark, how they cry aloud, crucify. It is not fit he live a day, they cry, who cannot live less than eternally. Now heal thyself, physician, now come down. Alas, I did so when I left my crown and father's smile for you to feel his frown. At first, it might seem like George Herbert is going too far to capture the extreme reality that it's no less than God the Son on the cross. But friends, if we consider the distance that Jesus traveled from exalted in glory above all things to hanging naked on a cross, wheezing for breath, bearing the weight of sins that he never committed, I don't, I don't think there really are any words for it. So even what George Herbert says is not quite capturing the fact that the man hanging there was also and mysteriously God the Son. More on this in a moment, but before we move on, would Jesus seem more capable and more trustworthy, more worth living for, more worth relying on if you knew and believed with your whole heart that he was the almighty king of the universe? who's in control of all things and who loves you unfathomably. Would Jesus seem more capable to help you with sleepless babies or medical emergencies or work stress or any number of things? Would it, would it give you boldness to proclaim him if, if we had within us this confidence this is no man, no mere man. This is the Lord of all things who I have entrusted my life to, who came down to save me. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. And the second is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Our main text, 1 Timothy 2, 5, emphasized the man, Jesus Christ. But the same writer, Paul, in Colossians 2, 9, emphasized Jesus' deity, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How are we supposed to square the words deity and bodily? How do they, how do they go together? Is Jesus mostly divine with this thin layer of human flesh? Or is he mostly human with this kiss of divine power? Kids, is he some sort of half man? and half God, like Perseus or Maui? No, he is fully God and fully man, stronger than Maui, 
more powerful. He's not half and half, some of this and some of that. He is totally God and he is totally man. I'm sorry, Maui, but you've got nothing on this one. Jesus was perfectly and uniquely both and, fully and completely God, fully and completely man. Here's how the statement of faith puts it, which is ultimately very similar to older creeds and confessions that were hammered out in the early centuries of the church. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, taking on himself a fully human nature with all its attributes and frailties, yet without sin. In this union, two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person of the divine son without confusion, without mixture or change. In other words, he doesn't have to switch gears between divine and human. For most of us, it's easy to remember that Jesus was a man who walked this earth at one time and then he died, then he was raised but what about after that point? Or better yet, what about right now? Wayne Grudem says, Jesus did not temporarily become man. He lives forever, not just as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus the man who was born of Mary and as Christ the Messiah and savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. This is just fascinating to me. If you were able to peer into heaven right now on a throne, is sitting someone who is nothing short of God himself. And yet he's sitting there as a complete flesh and blood man who is right now interceding for you as your great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, who? the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to that throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the, the reason for our confidence in drawing near is that as we come before the throne, we don't come to someone who is unfamiliar to us. We come and we say, he's like me. He knows me. He understands what I'm like, what I've been through, what challenges and temptations I face, what weariness I feel. He's well acquainted with all of that because he's lived a life just like I'm living. There's no situation that you will experience where the fully God, fully man, savior of the world won't be able to say, I get it, I've been there. I love to picture Jesus as our older brother who has walked a path before us and then we're, we're walking in behind him. We're not gonna come to a place where he doesn't understand. He doesn't have some firsthand level of experience. You're being betrayed, I know betrayal. You're feeling hounded by the evil one, I was in the desert with him. You're suffering, I have suffered too. That's why 
He came as a man. That's why he came down to live a certain period of time and not just appear on the scene, which we'll talk about in a minute. I've not watched the Chosen TV series in its entirety. Now, some of you can give, give me a talking to later, but that's okay. I've seen about an episode and a half and enjoyed it. But do you know why I think that many of us just enjoy this sort of presentation of Jesus so much? I think it's because he's human. It reminds us in a way that re resembles the gospel accounts that Jesus is human. He gets us. John says that we, we heard him, we touched him, we saw him with our eyes. Jesus is not foreign to us. He's like us. Now, one caveat to the chosen, does it or can it capture and lead you to marvel at the fact that Jesus was also divine? Even people who saw the real Jesus had trouble with this. So if we're gonna fight to believe that Jesus is human, we must also and equally fight to believe that Jesus is completely divine. The chosen does present Jesus in a human way and that's a very good thing. We need to know that Jesus was like us in every way and yet without sin. But a caution is that we must make every effort to uphold the fact that he was that eternal son of God in the flesh also. The chosen may very well help you do that, I don't know. I haven't watched it all. Um, but like Herbert's poem, what I do know is that no visual or retelling is going to quite cut it. It takes the eyes of faith to believe that Jesus is both human and divine, fully and unapologetically. That brings us to our third point. Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent to save. I wish we could spend a whole sermon on this section, but... Just to pull from last week and the introduction to sin and death into the world, God inserts some beautiful news in the midst of him laying out this curse on the ground and on the serpent and on Adam and Eve. He says this to the serpent, I will put enmity, strife, a struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was the first glimmer of hope in the wake of a ruined creation where death reigned. There would be one who had come from Eve who would crush the serpent's head, though the serpent would wound him. And from that point on, chapter three, God is steadily pouring out promises given to Israel or to Abraham, that through Abraham's descendants, the nations of the world would be blessed. To Israel, that there would be a prophet like Moses who would deliver God's people out of slavery. To David, that one of his descendants would sit on David's throne forever. To the rebellious nation of Israel, that I, through Isaiah, that a suffering servant would be pierced for their transgressions. All of these prophecies, all of these promises point to a deliverer, a king, a prophet, a priest, the focal point of the entire Bible, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the promised and anointed one. These are not all different people. They are the same Jesus. All of them were made about one person. He's the main act. He's not one character among many. Now, what exactly would he be sent for? 
Paul confidently puts it forward in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance for all of us that Jesus Christ came into the world, why? To save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came for one primary purpose, to glorify the triune God by revealing the truth about the Father and his plans to save sinners. And that brings us to his work, what Jesus came to do. We've visited the person. What about the saving work of Jesus Christ? First, Jesus Christ has done what is necessary and sufficient to save. R.C. Sproul begins his book called The Work of Christ like this. Any six-year-old who has spent a few Lord's Day mornings in Sunday school is able to give an accurate answer to the question, what did Jesus do for you? Usually that child will say, Jesus died for my sins. That's a true and profound statement, but it is only half the matter. If Jesus merely needed to die on the cross to save his people, he could have descended from heaven as a man on the morning of Good Friday, gone straight to Golgotha, died on the cross, risen, and then left again. Our sin problem would be fixed. He did not need to be born to Mary in a stable, go through all the trials and tribulations growing up in, his fallen, in this fallen world or endure the animosity of the Jewish leaders during his ministry. However, Jesus did not live those 33 years for nothing. It is important then that we do not minimize the work of Christ through his life by focusing too narrowly on the work of Christ in his death. Then Spohl goes on to explain why Jesus became a human child, why he was baptized, what happened when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what about his transfiguration, his triumphal entry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. All of it was necessary as he did all the Father willed for him to do. I just wanna take a moment to zoom in on one of those. Um, it's on Jesus' baptism because I think it proves that he has done all that was required to save us. Sproul points out the fact that John the Baptist was the first prophet of God in 400 years to arrive on the scene for Israel. And I think he mentioned that um, uh, it's not been 400 years yet since, uh, I think at the time of his writing, it's not been 400 years yet since, uh, I think it was pilgrims landed in Plymouth or something like that. It, a lot of history happens in 400 years, basically was his point. I might be totally butchering, butchering that. But 400 years without a prophet. John the Baptist is out in the boonies baptizing people calling them to repent because the kingdom of God wasn't just coming, it was here. And Jesus comes along, now a grown man who asked John to baptize him. Naturally, John is confused. He knows who Jesus is. He has known since the day when he leapt in his mother's womb. And he thinks Jesus should be the one baptizing him, aka cleansing him from his sins, not the other way around. But Jesus insists on being baptized. Why? Isn't this an unnecessary thing? Is it just for show or what's it for? The sinless son of God has nothing to repent of. Here's what Matthew records. But Jesus answered John the Baptist, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. 
One author puts it this way, evidently Jesus saw the purpose for his life as the fulfillment of all righteousness. The fact that participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sins to repent of, shows that the righteousness he wanted to fulfill was not the righteousness required of himself, but of every sinful man. All the righteousness that would be required of men before the court of God, Jesus performed. So he joined fallen humanity for whom he was providing righteousness by sharing their baptism. Jesus had no need to get baptized for his own sake. It was for our sake to show that he was getting into our muck of sinfulness and he was going to draw us out. I wish we could spend more time, but here's here's what I think Jesus' baptism and all he did during his ministry is meant to impress on us. Is there anything that Jesus has left incomplete that would be necessary to save us? Has he not gone the distance? Has he not by his great love shown us that he did not hold back anything? He didn't slip up in keeping the law. He did not back off of his pursuit to do the will of the Father. He did not cut corners. He did not lose heart, but did all that was necessary so that when he died on the cross, it would mean all that it was meant to mean for sinful people. It would mean true payment for wrongs done against God. It would mean true and untainted righteousness to those who had done nothing right in the sight of God. He has, not, has he not done everything necessary to make you and to make others his own? Friends, our Savior is sufficient. We don't have to look anywhere else to get right with God and to know God except to this one mediator, this one go-between. If there's any question about whether what Jesus did is a complete work and a sufficient work, Hebrews 9 is the place to go. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Our statement of faith says this, in his substitutionary death on behalf of his people, Christ offered himself by the spirit as a perfect sacrifice, which satisfies the demands of God's law by paying the full penalty for their sins. On the cross, Christ bore our sins, took our punishment, propitiated God's wrath against us, vindicated God's righteousness and purchased our redemption in order that we might be reconciled to God and live with him in blessed fellowship forever. Isn't that a beautiful thought, church? He is able to save us to the uttermost. There's nothing lacking in what he's done. The second aspect of his saving work is that Jesus Christ reigns and will complete his saving purposes. Again, the statement of faith says this, the exaltation of Christ in his resurrection, ascension, and reign reveals the full glory of his mediatorial work. As the exalted Lord, Christ reigns with all authority as a universal king and head of his church, governing the affairs of men and nations and empowering his people to be victorious over sin and Satan. The consummation of Christ's saving work will occur when he returns to judge the world in righteousness, deliver the kingdom to his father and receive eternal worship as king of kings and Lord of lords. 
So at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, we believe that Jesus reigns. He reigns over elected leaders. We believe that Jesus reigns over the, the affairs of every life in this room. We believe that he reigns over 7.8 billion lives around the world. We believe that he governs world events, the weather, the future. We believe that all things will come to a great culmination where the events laid out in Revelation will surely come to pass in exactly the way King Jesus, the risen Lord, intended them to be because he has all authority to do so. And we see why he has that authority in a very sad moment in Revelation, perhaps among many sad moments, the saddest. When God is seated on his throne and in his hand is a scroll with the rest of his unfolding plan for human history and it's all sealed up. No one can open it. No one can execute that plan that's within that scroll. But then there's a moment when the weeping stops. And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And if you keep reading, there's just this explosion of praise that no one else is worthy. No one else deserves the praise, the honor, and glory because no one else has done what Jesus has done. Church, for so many of us who are worried about tomorrow, the risen lamb has your future securely in his hands. He will accomplish all he has set out to do and by his mercy and grace that involves and includes us. The same one who loved you at the cross loves you now and will not forget you as he is conquering and vanquishing the last of sin, Satan and death. Beyond that, the risen lamb is worthy of our entire lives. He gave his life as a ransom for all. He is our only and beloved mediator between us and God. Do you find it odd though that you've never seen him? That's okay because First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I came across an old song. Some of you might know this. I never heard it before. It's an old hymn. It's called More Love to Thee, O Christ. And as we close, I wanna read the lyrics to you and I, I want to spend a few moments praying 
because just like Paul says, I bow my knees so that you would know the depth of this love. I want you to increasingly know this Jesus and attempt to try to understand how much he loves you as his church and as his child. Because as I started listening to the song, it, became, it has become more and more a prayer because I, I love Jesus, but there's more love to be had for him. It says, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. So I want to take just a few moments this morning, gather up in groups of three, five, just pray that for one another. Pray for yourself. Let's take a couple minutes because that is, that's what we're going to spend our entire lives as a church, as people on this earth growing in, trying to understand how much have you loved me? And that, for that, we need the help of the Spirit. So let's go ahead and gather up, uh, pray. We'll take three or four minutes here to do that, and then we'll switch to the Lord's Supper here.